All right, so today we're talking about, we're continuing a study on challenges on the road to discipleship. Uh, and there are certainly many, many different kinds. So I want you to bring back to mind what we started with last week, which is think about the movies or stories where there's a group or an individual on the road going somewhere and they come across various challenges. We mentioned The Wizard of Oz is one. Uh, Lord of the Rings, they're on a journey or a destination. There are challenges that come up along the way. Finding Nemo. Uh, As the father looks for Nemo, he's going to encounter a lot of challenges, discouragement. He's going to come across some adversity. Uh, Those stories kind of ring true with us because they're stories of our journey in discipleship. We are on a certain road. We are being led by God, and there are challenges that come up along the way on the road to discipleship. And so we're identifying these in the passage. Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. He's got the 12 apostles. He's got a band of women that are with him also. There's the 72. There's 72 other disciples with him. And there's hundreds, maybe a thousand that are surrounding them. This big mob of people around the road to Jerusalem. And they're coming across the following challenges. Last week we talked about unbelief. Have to deal with your own unbelief as a disciple of Christ. And here's where I want to pick it up this week. We'll mention several more this week. The second one we come across is confusion. As you journey with God, you have to deal with this. Confusion about the ways of God. Sometimes we don't really understand what God is up to in the world and in our lives. And we have to deal with confusion and come to a place where we just rest in him. Listen to what he tells the disciples. While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Guys, listen up. That's what he's saying to the disciples. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, this is an interesting passage. Jesus looks at the twelve, and he says, I want you to pay especially close attention to this. The Son of Man is going to be delivered up into the hands of men. And the disciples are completely confused about what Jesus means. Now, why were the disciples confused? I think of it this way. I want you to think for a minute about tributaries that run into a big river. Maybe three or four tributaries that create that big river. This passage can be viewed that way. There are different streams or tributaries that run into this river of confusion. It's not just one thing. The source of water and the source of confusion is coming from at least four or five different places, okay? So let me just point these out, and then we'll talk a little bit about confused with the ways of God. First of all, just frankly, the disciples are too immature. Some of this is their fault. Some of it is not, and I'll get to that in a moment. But some of this is the disciples' fault. Jesus just rebuked them for a certain unbelief and a moral failure. And they're still working on some hard issues. In verse 41, Jesus said, O faithless and twisted generation, how long must I be with you? In other words, every step the disciples take, there's some things they're doing well. There's some things they're not doing so well. And rather than listen to Jesus, what the disciples are doing is they're only listening to the things that they want to hear. In other words, they're acting a little bit like a coffee filter. They're letting certain things go through, but not taking everything in. And part of the reason they're confused when Jesus says, I'm going to be delivered up, is because they don't want to believe that he will be delivered up. 
It's like that great theologian Paul Simon said, all lies and jests till a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. In other words, that's true of all of us. We sometimes hear what we want God to say, but we don't listen to everything that God has spoken of. And therefore, we come out confused on the other side. We kind of filter like a coffee filter. We hear what we want to hear and we block out the rest. And so the disciples here, frankly, they're just at a point in their walk with God where they're too immature. And this is true of all of us to some degree. The second thing I don't think is their fault. They're just too close to the situation. Do you notice in the passage, this kind of throws us off. It says that it was hidden from them. There's a couple of ways things can be hidden. This is a very specific Greek word. There's a, there's a way you hide something from someone very intentionally. So, for example, you hid your kid's Easter basket. You're hiding it so they can't find it, right? That, so that's one way to hide something. But there's a kind of hiddenness that comes because you're just too close to something. Remember that expression that says, I can't see the forest through the trees? You're just so close to the trees you can't even see the forest? That's the idea of the word hidden or concealed here. The disciples are so close to the situation, there's no way they could possibly understand what it means that the Messiah is going to go to the cross. Not until they get like a 30,000 foot view, which they're going to get after the resurrection. So asking the disciples to understand what Jesus is saying here, is like asking someone to explain the Amazon rainforest by just taking a hike in the forest. You really can't explain the forest until you take the hike and you have a 30,000 foot view from above. You're not going to understand the magnitude of the Amazon rainforest, right? You need that big picture view. The disciples are just too close to the situation to understand this. Number three, it's just too soon. I mean, they're not going to get this until after the resurrection. These, frankly, are not necessarily the best witnesses of these events because they have yet to come through the other side of the resurrection. The gospel of Jesus is a little like the movie The Sixth Sense. A spoiler alert. This is, how old is The Sixth Sense? It's old enough where I can, don't have to give a spoiler alert, right? The Sixth Sense is one of those movies you just don't get it until the last scene. And it doesn't matter how intuitive you are. You're just not going to get it until the last scene. But once you get the last scene, you're like... Oh, that makes complete sense. That's how the gospel of Jesus is. You can talk all about this cross and resurrection stuff, but until you actually get to the other side of the resurrection, the pieces don't really fall into place. But once they do, you have one of those aha moments. Oh, that's, that's what he meant. That's what's happening with the disciples. When Jesus stares them in the face and even says, let this sink into your ears, literally what he says, they're not going to get it. Not in its fullness. But once Jesus rises from the dead, the gospel writers tell us, all of a sudden, the words that Jesus spoke came back to them. The sixth sense just happened. The end of the story. And all of a sudden, all the pieces kind of fell into place. It's just too soon for them really to understand. We could talk about this one for a long time in relation to you and I. To some degree, when we're confused with the ways of God, it's just too soon. You haven't had a chance to see all the pieces come together. Sometimes in this life, you get to see that. I can tell you, I've had moments in my life where I felt like it was mad chaos and confusion. And then God did something or something was revealed. And I'm like, oh, oh, that was good, you know. 
That's the kind of aha moment we have when we go to see Jesus in heaven. Well, all of a sudden, the pain and the suffering of this life, you have an aha moment. It's just too soon right now. And for the disciples, to some degree, it's just too soon. And we also have to say this, they're they're just too afraid. And that's that last part. They were too afraid to ask him about this saying. Again, they want to hear what they want to hear. They feel like if they ask him, they're just going to make it worse. So they're too afraid to ask Jesus. We have a lot of phobias in our English vocabulary. Acrophobia, I think that's the fear of heights. Monophobia, that's the fear of being alone. Claustrophobia, which many of us have, the fear of those enclosed spaces. But, but I wonder if one of the greater fears is not just the fear of the unknown. Not knowing what's going to happen and being afraid of what's going to happen to the point where you don't even want to ask what's going to happen. And that's where the disciples seem to be. If we were to read Matthew's account of this, it actually says that the disciples were filled with grief. They're confused. They're full of grief. They have no idea what's going on. And so, again, we're back to these streams. You've got all these tributaries that run into this, this river of confusion. And one or more of these may be true of us. We're frankly sometimes just too immature. We're only hearing what we want to hear. We're too close to things. It's too soon. And frankly, sometimes we're too afraid to face the truth. And when you bring all these together, those little streams become whitewater rapids of confusion. On the road to discipleship, at some point, every one of us has to deal with this kind of confusion. Confused about the ways of God. Confused about what God is doing in the world or what we think God is doing in the world. You find this, by the way, all over the Old and the New Testament, where very, frankly, godly people were confused about the ways of God. The Philippian church, of all the churches that Paul writes to, there's a church called Philippi, which is probably the most mature church that we find in Scripture. I think they get the least rebuke out of all Paul's churches, right? Um, You know what happened in the church of Philippi? They were loaded with confusion. Read chapter 1, it's because of this. They were asking this question. Paul is in prison as he writes to them, and they're asking, if, if God wants churches to be planted, why is Paul in prison? Why would you put your best church planter on the bench if you need him in the game? That completely confused them and threw them off. Paul writes at least a chapter and a half to the Philippians to explain why he is in prison and why they shouldn't let this take them off the road of discipleship. It makes complete sense from Paul's perspective what God is doing. That's why he says things like this in chapter 1 and 2, that I'm in prison, but don't you realize that the whole imperial guard is now hearing about Christ? He's explaining to the Philippians that God is using this prison experience in his life and in their life. And then you got chapters like Romans 9 through 11, where you got all these promises in the Old Testament given to Jewish people, and the Roman church is going, how come my church is full of Greeks? I mean, if all the promises are to Israel, why is my church full of people that are Greek and Roman? It's confusing to them. Has the promises of God fallen apart? So Paul writes Romans 9 through 11 to clear up some of the confusion. If you read 1 Corinthians, they had their own issues. The Corinthians were thinking this, if the gospel is so wonderful and so valuable and it's the greatest message the world has ever seen, how come the elite people of this world don't want a whole lot to do with it? 
And that's why Paul says, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen to reveal these things to the foolish people of the world, right? That's got to kind of throw you off if you're in the Corinthian church. Not many noble, not many mighty are called. Really? Yeah. Foolish people? Is he talking about us? <laughs> you know? But what Paul is doing there is clearing up confusion about the ways of God. This is all over the scriptures, and I would say it's probably all over our hearts too. Why would God create a world if he knew it was going to have so much pain and suffering? Now, you may be a genius. I'm confused by that. If God can stop suffering, why doesn't he? Well, I know the theological answer, but I still am a little bit confused. Why did God make me this way? Why did he make me where I can't understand things that other people understand? Why did he make me with what feels like a physical defect in my body? Why did he make me so that when I take a step, it hurts, but when other people step the same way, it doesn't hurt? Why did God make me this way? We can be confused about why God would do something like that. Why does it seem like people around me that are very indifferent to God do very well in life? And godly people seem to do so poorly. That's the same question that the psalmist in Psalm 73 asked. He said, for as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps had slipped. I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That's confusing to the psalmist. Some of the most ungodly people I know, the psalmist says, are the billionaires in this world. Why is that? If God really wants me to help people, does God want you to help people? Yeah. If he really wants me to help people, why does he keep allowing me in situations where I can't even help myself? These are questions that run through our mind. And these may not be running through your mind. You may have your own set of questions. But we're confused about the ways of God. If you have some confusion in your discipleship, welcome to the club. The disciples have it here. The Roman church had it. The Philippians have it. Let me just give you a couple thoughts about this challenge. Number one, in this life, we will get some of our questions answered. Frankly, I think the longer you walk with God, the more you get answered. But we're not going to get them all answered, (laughs) right? Why? Because we're too mature, it's too soon, we're too close, we're too afraid, go right down the list. Those things are always going to be true to some degree. And on the road to discipleship, we we have to learn to live with degrees of confusion, that we're not going to have all the answers in this life to the big questions we have. Now, this is really important. Just because you and I don't have all the answers doesn't mean that God doesn't have the answers. The disciples are confused. Guess who isn't? Jesus. He's not confused about this. He knows exactly what's going to happen, right? What happens in Christianity, sometimes with individuals, sometimes even in communities, is we develop what I call an idol of knowledge. And it sounds like this. Lord, I will follow you to the ends of the earth. You just have to answer my questions first. (laughs) And as soon as you do, I will commit my life to you. But I will never be at peace until you answer this question. Why would you allow this to happen or that to happen? That can become a little bit of an idol of knowledge. Where we almost want to hold the Lord in some contempt if we're not careful. I would also say this, um, with the questions that we have, the theological, the practical, we have to realize that even if God were to answer all of our questions right now in the way we wanted, 
That doesn't mean you and I are in a position to understand that well. I think this takes some degree of humility for us to understand. We blame God when we don't understand, but sometimes we're just not at the place of maturity where we're ready to hear things. But the last thing is the most important. How do you trust God even in moments of confusion? I mean, how do you trust God when you really are wrestling with why or how or something like that and you're not at peace? And that's where the gospel here comes into play. Notice what Jesus says. The Son of Man is going to be delivered. Now, what does that mean? The Son of Man is going to be delivered. That means I'm going to go to the cross. And the disciples are completely thrown off by this, right? But we want to remember that Jesus has a plan. God has a plan in going to the cross. And that act of going to the cross that is completely throwing the disciples into confusion is going to lead to the salvation of the world. In other words, if God can make sense of the confusion the disciples are feeling over the death of Jesus, he can someday make sense of any confusion that you and I are feeling. If you're confused about the ways of God, I want you to think deeply about the gospel. Think about the story of Jesus. There is no greater confusion that the world has ever seen. An innocent man died on a cross. Purely innocent man died on a cross. And yet God used that for the salvation of the church and the world. And you and I, we can trust God in our moments of confusion because he can do the same with us. So we have to wrestle with, to some degree, these ideas of confusion. Number two, we're going to come across our own pride. Unbelief was one. Confusion is two. And the third challenge on the road to discipleship is pride. Look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And he who is least among you is also one who is great. So they start to argue, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Does this mean who's the most valuable? Does this mean who gets the most authority? Does it mean who does God love the most? We don't really know what they're arguing over. But they're arguing over some kind of pecking order. He's first, I'm second, he's third. They're like little kids at a bus stop arguing about who's going to get on the bus first, right? And Jesus knows their thoughts. That's what it says. So this is the feeling I'm getting. It says Jesus knows their thoughts. I don't know if Jesus overheard them. I doubt they're going to argue right in front of Jesus as to who the greatest is. So they're kind of over on the side having these side conversations. Jesus knows their hearts. He knows they're arguing and talking about this. So Jesus takes a child. How old is the child? I would say old enough to understand, but still small enough to sit on Jesus' lap. So whatever age that might be, right? Jesus takes a child, picks him up, sits him in the middle, and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. In other words, you need to receive each other, right? The child in that culture is considered the lowest on the social, social pecking order. In our day and age, children are, to some degree, I think, on the top, you know, in our culture. In the ancient world, they're all the way on the bottom. It's the old culture of children to be seen and not heard, you know. And so, so Jesus says, look how I receive this child. That's how you should receive each other. By the way, how does a fight like this even start? My best shot at this, if you're interested, is 
Remember when Jesus said about John the Baptist, he's the greatest prophet, he's the greatest? I wonder if that didn't spark in the disciples' mind, well, who among us is the greatest? Because that takes place right before this argument. And maybe that caused them to bicker with each other about who the greatest is. So what Jesus is teaching us here is pride and arrogance has a blinding effect, a blinding effect. Think about the sun. And think about how the sun has a blinding effect. For example, you're, you're an outfielder in baseball or softball, and you look up to catch a ball, and the sun is just staring at you, and so you can't see the ball. It has a blinding effect. The, the pride of life is blinding the disciples to three things. Let me just touch on these. One, theologically, they are blinded to the greatness of God. I want you to think about for a minute what just happened here in this passage, right? They just came off Mount Transfiguration. Remember this? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus glorified. This is the most amazing thing the disciples, at least three of them, had ever seen. This is seeing Jesus in a glorified state, something that if you and I saw, we would probably fall down right now just in humility before him. So transfiguration, that's a big deal. Number two, they just saw Jesus exercise a demon, one that they themselves could not cast out. Number three, if you go to the book of Matthew, Jesus just paid the temple tax from the fish's mouth. The disciples have to pay a tax. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Go pull a fish out of the water. Peter pulls a fish out. He's a fisherman. He's good at that. And he reaches into his mouth and pulls a coin out. That's impressive. Those are three really impressive things. Mount Transfiguration, exercising a demon, and pulling money out of a fish's mouth. All the greatness of Jesus that they just witnessed. And then they turn to each other and said, I think I'm better than you. I... I bet he's better than you, but you're not better than me. They are blinded to the glory of Jesus, and they're blinded to the glory of God. And if we're not careful, the same thing can happen to us. Pride has a way of making us very apathetic spiritually towards God because we're so curved in on ourselves. It's almost like a spiritual novocaine of the heart, of the spirit, where we're not seeing who God is and what he's done. I read an article a couple of years ago, was it Kathy Grossman, USA Today, who wrote an article about the new spiritual movement in the U.S. And she said, it's not atheism, it's not agnosticism, it's, what did she call it, apathyist, apathyism, or something like that, where she says this, neither raging atheist scientist Richard Dawkins, he says, nor televangelist Pat Robertson would understand the fuzzy stance of most people today. In other words, we are living in a world that's very apathetic towards God. And Jesus, through this passage, wants to make sure that that's not true of his church. That we don't let our pride curve. This is the old Latin phrase, by the way. The Latins describe sin as curved in on yourself. right? So, in other words, there's a self-obsession, almost a narcissism. Remember the story of narcissism? Was it Narcissus? One of the Greek gods is walking. And uh, there's another god, Echo. And uh, Echo and Narcissus get in a conversation. And Narcissus uh, rejects Echo's advances, so she casts a spell on him. She casts a spell where he falls in love with himself. And he looks into a puddle or a pond, and he can't stop staring at himself. And apparently he's stuck there forever. 
That's a good picture of sin. You're curved in on yourself. There is such a self-obsession that you really don't even stop and pause and think about how great God is and what he's just done. I had a moment this morning where I was reading this passage and I just kind of closed my eyes for a couple of minutes and just started ticking off all the amazing things that God has done for me just in the last 20 minutes. And I was reminded how often I'm even curved in on myself. So number one, we're blinded theologically. Number two, we are blinded sociologically. When we're curved in on ourselves, we're really not concerned about other people's pain around us. So let's again put this in context for a minute. Verse 43, this is the passage we just read. Jesus looks at the disciples, right? And he says, the son of man, the son of man is about to be delivered up. I'm going to die. And the disciples go, John, come here. I think we're better than those two over there. Is that amazingly insensitive or what? Their master, their rabbi, Their teacher, get this, their best friend just said, I'm about to die a horrible death. And all they can do is create a pecking order about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. It's incredibly callous. They are arrogant in the face of the pain of Jesus. And pride has a way of blinding us to the needs of people around us. Um. You know, 2 Timothy 3, there's there's a passage in there. It's an interesting phrase. Um, Paul says that for uh, arrogant people, they they are, get this language, without natural affection. Without natural affection. You guys know there's a lot of words for love. I know you know this. Agape, which is, you know, uh, philos, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. There's a third Greek word for love. It's called storge. Storge is not a brotherly love, and it's not, it's not an eros love. It's the kind of love you have for your child, or the kind of love a, a son might have for a father. It's a family love, storge, right? Think of a baby. That's the kind of love. And when you put an A in front of the word, it negates it like atheist, you know? That's the word in this passage. A storge. They are without natural affection. There's a kind of love that you would naturally have for your child, you'd naturally have for your family. You can become so wound up in pride that you don't even care about the people that you would naturally love. That's what pride can do to us. It can blind us to the needs around us, blind us to the pain that a neighbor has, can blind us to the pain that one of our children have, blind us to the pain that one of our aging parents can have when we're curved in on ourselves We're being insensitive like the disciples are to the plight Jesus is about to undergo. The third one, we'll just say, is they're blinded to their own sins and faults. It's anthropological. They don't even realize. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus just looked at, you realize he just looked at him and said, you're a faithless and twisted generation? You just told them you're faithless and twisted. And they're like, which one of us is the best? It's just ironic. Pride is just blinding them like crazy. They're comparing themselves to each other. Let me tell you what Christians do when it comes. This is how we're supposed to do. We are not supposed to compare ourselves to each other. We stand in the light and the beauty of Jesus. And when we do that, all of a sudden, our comparisons don't mean that much. That's what's supposed to happen as Christians. You can take a 50-watt light bulb and a 100-watt light bulb 
You walk into a dark room, you can see a difference between the two. But if you take two of those bulbs and you hold them up to the sun, they look like they're not even lit. All of a sudden, the 50 watts is not such a big deal. That's how we Christians are. We may feel we're better than someone else. We may or may not be in a certain area. When we stand in the light of who Jesus is, all of a sudden, those differences are no longer magnified. All of a sudden, the fact that I said this lie, but he said that lie, that's not such a big deal. You know, all of a sudden, we both need to, to repent and, and come to Christ in some way. And that's how we are called to live. I want to close on this passage. I just want to read it one more time. And I want to pick this up next week. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Jesus, knowing their reasoning in their hearts, took a child, put him by his side, and said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who has sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. And here's the question we close with. Are, Are we full of pride? Are we curved in on ourselves? Are we seeing God for who he is? Are we seeing the pain in somebody else's life? Are we seeing our own sins and faults? And if we are honest with ourselves as individuals, I think we have to answer no to that. But here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is our humility. As Christians, we will not be forgiven because of our humility. We're going to be forgiven because of Jesus' humility for us. He stands in our place. And when God looks at us, he's not seeing us with all our pride and our arrogance, even though we kind of hide it from other people. We have it in our hearts, don't we? When we stand before God, we stand complete in Christ, that he doesn't see us. He sees the work of his son, Jesus, the death on the cross, the humility, and the resurrection. Therefore, we can walk with God because Christ has presented himself before the Father for us. Lord God, we thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for your concern for us. And continue to speak to our hearts. Help us to be the kind of people you've redeemed us to be. I do want to pray, God, that as we walk the road of discipleship, you help us through these various challenges. We have to deal with our own unbelief. Help us to say with the father of that boy, I believe, help thou my unbelief not afraid to confess it before you and asking you to strengthen us. We have to deal with our own confusion. So often confused by the ways of God. We may not get all the answers in this life, but Lord, we can trust you because if you can make sense of the suffering of Jesus on the cross, you can make sense of any suffering in our lives and help us to deal with the issue of pride. God, we often exalt ourselves far higher than we should. And yet you tell us, you resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. We come before you in Christ, in his name, through the power of the Holy Spirit, humbling ourselves so in due time you can lift us up. And all glory belongs to you in Christ's name. Amen.